Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, is college still college without a campus? A check-in on higher ed. All right, let's start the show. Hey y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. This week on the show, we're going to college. I know right now, most students are on summer vacation. But there are big questions about whether the fall semester will happen in person later this year. So many colleges and government leaders and public health officials are saying so many different things about all of this. Even the Trump administration is going back and forth. Just this week, they backtracked on a decision to force international students out of the country if they couldn't take classes in person in the fall. This episode, we're going to see what students and a professor are hoping for in the next school year. And to be clear here, listeners, we are only talking about higher ed right now. K through 12 is its own mess, and we can't do it all in one episode. You'll have to wait for another episode on that one, but we will talk about that, rest assured. All right, let's begin. We asked college and university students to tell us what they're going through right now, what they want for the fall semester, what they're afraid of. Turns out a lot of them still have a lot of questions. Hi, my name is Dimitri Nesbitt. I'm a recent graduate of the University of Wyoming and still plan on attending graduate school this fall. My name is Kevin Lopez, and I'm a second-year law student at the University of Florida College of Law. Hi, Sam. My name is Paige, and I go to Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Um, our current plan is to do hybrid courses, which is a mix of in-person and online. And my biggest fear is that I'm going to bring home COVID-19 to my boyfriend, who I live with. Is this the right way to start graduate school online? Will I make meaningful connections? Um, I chose to stay home. And it was a tough decision to make because I really wanted to be back on campus. My name is Liam McBain. I am a senior at NYU and I'm the general manager of WNYU, the university's student-run radio station. For me, the station was a safe place to be queer and trans even when the rest of the university definitely wasn't. It's really upsetting to me that freshmen won't be able to stumble on it on their way to the dining hall. And I'm just worried that they won't find their people. We're kind of done. There's only so much we can learn in this last year um, with what we think will inevitably be largely online classes. I can't imagine that will last very long. We're gonna miss out on, on everything. Thanks again to all those students we heard from just now. I really hope things get figured out for y'all. I do. All right, so when it comes to colleges and universities and the pandemic, professors are also a part of this equation. And they are in a tough spot. They don't make the call on whether their schools will open this fall. But whatever the case, they will have to teach. What is the first lesson you're going to teach in your first class when this fall semester begins, whether it be in person or online? Well, I can already tell you, mine is definitely online. And <laughs> I am. That is Tressie McMillan Cottom, PhD. She is a sociologist and associate professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. UNC is trying to get students back on campus this fall, but there are still a lot of details to work out. You know, I was poking around the UNC website before this interview. And I was looking at the portion of the website that kind of lays out what they think their plans might be for the fall. And I was just mm-hmm. like, hmm, let's see if that happens. They were like, classes will still take place on campus, but there'll be longer breaks between them so you can be distanced and not all be 
cramming down the same walkway, I guess. They're going to try to space out dining in the dining halls. They're going to have the residence halls open but distance them more. And then this was the one that really, really was like, whoa, for me. They're going to have a special dorm for students on campus who get COVID during the semester. Yes. <laughs> what? Yes. Reading all of this, I said to myself, this only works if everyone on that campus follows the rules 25-7. And I was once a college student, and let me tell you, when I was an undergrad, following the rules was not on the top of my list. Do you think that college-age students can pull it off? They're different than older people. Uh, They are different, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Uh, Some psychologists would argue, you know, that their frontal lobe is even still very actively under development. Um, Although I would say it isn't just our undergraduates who are of traditional age, I think that this is difficult for all kinds of students. I really Mm. do. And I tell you why. Everything about what the college experience is designed to do is about collapsing proximity. So Mm. even if you're older and you really value social distancing and you want to do it, how do you do it? When the college experience has spent years forcing students together into library spaces, group work, laboratory work, hangout spaces, dining halls. When you sign up to be a student, you are signing up to be close to other people. Mm. That's what being a student is. Because once you get on campus, you're going to be like, I'm here. Let me do the college things. Listen, Sherry Pagoda is a professor at the University of uh, Connecticut, and she recently did a focus group with some of her students there asking them about whether they think it was realistic to return to campus. And the students themselves said, oh, absolutely not. I miss my friends. And as soon as I'm there, I want to see my friends. It's going to be very difficult not to do that. They also brought up the fact that, listen, if I'm going to be trapped in my dorm uh, for hours out of the day with nothing to entertain me, I'm going to be be that much more like, that's right. Exactly. (laughs) Like, she has rooms at her house. This dorm is eight by eight. That's right. So then if they know it, if everyone kind of knows it, if the public health data suggests that you should not have large swaths of people on a place like a college campus, why is a school like UNC Chapel Hill saying they're going to reopen? Almost every university goes broke if they do not. Mm. I mean, the material reality of this thing cannot be overstated. Wow. There has been an insufficient state response to providing emergency financial cash infusions into universities, especially public universities. We can't even say that there's a federal response. I mean, there's no coordinated federal investment <laughs> yeah. in keeping universities open um, and sustained. Um And so they are faced with like the same reality that, frankly, individuals are faced with right now, which is, does anybody really want to return to work under these Mm -hmm. circumstances? Of course not. Mm -hmm. We're being forced to even consider that undesirable option because the federal government won't just send you money, because we won't step in and suspend rent. At an institutional level, colleges and universities are experiencing the exact same thing. One year of not operating and not having tuition revenue for a lot of universities would spell the end of them. Even at better resource universities like the University of North Carolina, we rely so much on uh, state investment that while we probably wouldn't close immediately, we would be hobbled indefinitely. Mm. Well, and then like my little 
small private Catholic school in San Antonio, oh, yeah. Texas. Sorry. They <laughs> they rely primarily yes. on student tuition. That's and right. And the only way you're going to get parents to pay full tuition for their kids is if their kids get the full experience. That is correct. Mm. That's the moment that we're in. There are very few colleges and universities with um, a brand name that's strong enough, like Harvard, let's be clear and let's be yeah. honest, yeah. <laughs> like Harvard, that can say, well, go online and people will pay for the product anyway. Mm-hmm. For most people, the experience is the exchange that they signed up exactly. for. Exactly. Um, and that's how they have justified the tuition that they will pay. So the small privates, especially, that are tuition dependent are are beyond vulnerable. They are in a crisis situation. Yeah. What does this say about the state of higher education mm-hmm. that the majority of colleges are saying we have to open up in some kind of way in the fall? But mm-hmm. the wealthiest and most prestigious schools like Harvard are saying online only. Mm-hmm. That says something about the state of affairs, right? And I'm not sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, it says that the 30 years that we have uh, shifted how we pay for higher education in this country, those chickens have finally come home to roost, Mm. right? We have shifted the responsibility of uh, paying for college increasingly away from states or the public good Mm. and public investment to individuals and families. That's why tuition has been rising for the typical American family and typical American student. What that means is that we set up a set of really perverse incentives that are becoming very obvious right now. The institutions that can afford it because they have endowments, because they have prestige, because they have political capital, Harvard, Yale, Princeton's, are choosing to prioritize student health and well-being over revenue. Mm. All institutions would make that choice if they could. The fact that they cannot make that choice is because of the way we have shifted how we pay for higher education. And we Mm. have done that through the political choices that we've made by shifting the cost of higher education onto families. Yeah. Is there a reality in which families at some schools will just paid less or like half tuition for just online college. Do you think that's an idea that's gaining traction? Are are you hearing through the, I don't know, university professor uh, grapevine that that might be a (laughs) thing or no? I think people like to say it like, oh, if I'm going online, this should be 50%, you know, cheaper. Um, And listen, and I say, if it makes people feel good to argue about the price of college, that's fine. Uh, (laughs) Here's the thing. The cost of providing, however, online education, it costs just as much to do that as it costs to provide it on campus. Mm. That's why institutions can't really do tuition discounting. Mm -hmm. Most schools, they are already operating on very thin margins. Um, and discounting tuition will put them in the same position they would have been in if the person had not enrolled. Um, so, for example, your small private Catholic school mm-hmm. can't afford probably to discount tuition. Yeah. yeah. 
See, now you got me thinking I need to go online and donate to my alma mater. You should. You should. (laughs) Look, I don't like personal solutions to big structural problems. But if we can show a little love, those of us who could. I've done that. I've donated recently a lot more to my historically black college, which is my undergrad institution. And even to my graduate institution, which I always say they've got all that good slave money. They don't need mine. (laughs) But... I have felt so emotionally convicted in this moment. Even yeah. I have upped my donations. Um, yeah. Do you think that this pandemic and the ways in which colleges and universities respond to it, will it exacerbate all of the problems that we've talked about when it comes to higher education, the consumerism, mm-hmm. the cost, the debt, et cetera? Or oh, is this yeah. an aha moment where this system says it's time to make a big change? You know, I... My instinct, you know, as a social scientist, I tend to be a bit pessimistic. We're just going to double down on the consumer models because now the value of every tuition paying family has shot up. On the other hand, I will say we've looked at social uprisings every day for the last 48, 49 days straight across the country. I think people are hearing things. They are engaging in this really wonderful democratic way. And I got to say, I think our shared burden of student loan debt is partially responsible for how radicalized a lot of people are now. Yes. Yes. And so that makes me very hopeful that people now see their lives linked to the lives of other people, if only through their shared debt burden. Um, I think if people are engaged in that way, hold political candidates, you know, feet to the fire and really articulate what we believe higher education should be, which is affordable and accessible and democratic, there's always hope. Thanks again to Tressie McMillan Cottom, Associate Professor at UNC Chapel Hill. All right, time for a break. When we come back, we will go to a different kind of school. Ziwe Fumado has been educating celebrities and viewers on race through her Instagram live show. And she does it by asking the most awkward and difficult questions. Jeremy O'Harris, why do you hate black women? Have you ever called the police on a black person before? Um, how many black friends do you have, Alice Roman? After the break, she tells me why she's doing this and why it works. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit betterhelp.com minute to learn more and get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Verbo. Summer is here, and vacation is just a drive away. Search thousands of nearby vacation rentals on Verbo to find your family a private home all to yourselves, where you can spread out, chill out, and feel that vacation feeling again together. Book the home that makes the vacation. Download the Verbo app. That's V-R-B-O. From Miss Anne to Becky to Karen. Our very own Karen. Not that Karen. Karen Grigsby-Bates shares the evolution of the nickname for a certain kind of white woman. I'm looking forward to the next iteration. I want my name back. That's coming up on NPR's Code Switch. 
So on top of everything else, 2020 has seen a lot of celebrities, big and small, be canceled. And my next guest is asking those celebrities some pretty uncomfortable questions. I said at the beginning of 2020 that I was not going to let my foot off people's necks. And so I really am glad <laughs> to see that come to fruition. Although I did That is comedian that. and Jesus and Mero writer Ziway Fumido. Ziway hosts a very popular Instagram live show. On that show, she asks her famous guest about race and bias in their lives. These questions, they are somehow uncomfortably direct and hilariously absurd all at the same time. And the answers, oh my God, they're so revealing. Here's a bit of her chat with Me Too activist and actress Rose McGowan. Have you ever called the police on a black person before? No. Okay, let's let's just like, we're gonna role play. You're obviously a very talented actress. Now let's say I, we're in an alleyway and I stab you repeatedly, okay? This is a question Z-Way asked food writer Allison Roman. Um, how many black friends do you have, Allison Roman? Um, do you define friend like someone who would pick me up from the airport or like people I follow or people that I know? Because I have like, I would say four to five black friends that would pick me up at the airport. Four to five? You are the third person to say they have four to five black friends. And Z-Way isn't afraid to grill black artists either. She asked this question of playwright Jeremy O'Harris. Jeremy O'Harris, why do you hate black women? I don't hate black women. My mom's a black now, woman. Is- my sister's a black woman. My best friends are, are black. You're related to black women? Okay, interesting. Z-Way's show is actually an offshoot of her YouTube series, Baited, which has a similar approach. It's a style that Z-Way has been perfecting for years, like ever since she was in high school. I want to talk about your fascination with discomfort. You've talked about this before. And what I really like that you said, you said that like you want white people in this moment, good-hearted white people who think they're trying to do the right thing, you want them to feel as uncomfortable talking about race as black people feel living race every day. Totally. I mean, every single day of my life, I've experienced racism since I was I was pulled out of my mother's womb. Um, and mm. it's just it's 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 the worst. I hate it. I wish I didn't have to deal <laughs> me with too, race. Girl, right? me it's, too. it's terrible. I wish I didn't have to deal with racism. But it's like if I'm going to be uh, marginalized every day of my life, then hell, then I'll, I'll be damned if you don't feel the same way. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's just me kind of reversing. It's me taking my authority and my autonomy and kind of reversing that on a society that's really oppressed me. Yeah. When did you start doing this uh, ask white people hard questions about race to their face thing? Did it start in high school, in college? Was there a moment where you're like, I'm gonna do this? So so professionally, it started in 2016, but I've this is my personality trait. For better or worse, it makes me a horrible <laughs> dinner party guest, but a very funny entertainer. And so I maybe started doing this in high school where I would just, I was I went to prep school and I grew up in like a predominantly... Um, Latino neighborhood in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, and then I went to Andover, which is the opposite of that. It's very, very white, very rich, very affluent. And so I kind of just embraced that experience of being feeling like an other all of a sudden, you know, at 14 years old. And I kind of went headfirst into it and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to make people's lives hell. Um, and so I kind of raised hell as a high schooler and would just ask uncomfortable questions because it made it entertained me. Um, and it gave me um, joy when Otherwise, I might feel sort of excluded. I want to walk through some of the more awkward moments of the Instagram Live series, but I want to talk about what the transition from a YouTube series to an Instagram Live show, what it meant for the flow of the conversation. I'm assuming a YouTube series, you kind of get to edit everything in post. 
and yes. make it have a flow and an arc. With Instagram Live, it's just there. Oh, How does that 100%. change these questions and these conversations? Well, I think if someone said something egregiously racist during the YouTube production, I would just cut it out because it's like, I don't <laughs> think anybody is helped from being traumatized this way. Whereas with um, the Instagram lives, it's I have to really be an active listener because it's like, we, I think you see it most with the Alison Roman interview where she, I ask her, what do you qualitatively like about black people? And she kind of stuttered. She's like, um, qualitatively uh that i mean i i can say what i like qualitatively about my black friends or you mean generally speaking however about, you interpret the question um qualitatively i love that they um their food almost always tastes better than mine okay we're They're gonna stop you right way there. better dancers stop you right there we're gonna okay. stop you i'm doing you a favor <laughs> Okay. And so I don't really give her anything <laughs> because I want to <laughs> see what is the natural, what's her natural inclination for that question. Because my point isn't necessarily to get my guests canceled. My point is to show the ways in which in conversation we bring up unconscious biases and we bring up racist backgrounds that we have just by virtue of living in the United States. And so I get the most, I'm the most happy when I have audience members message me in my DM saying, hey, like I watched your show and I saw the way that the guests answered questions. And now I'm mm. thinking about the way I would answer those questions. And I realized like, hey, I'm not perfect and I have a lot to learn because I, Z-Way Fumido, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I am not the gatekeeper of racism in America. I'm just trying to learn and I'm trying to teach others. And I think that we can grow and heal as a nation if we work together to unlearn racism. Yes, <laughs> yes. Do you <laughs> think there was something about your upbringing, where you grew up, where you came up, where you went to school, how you were raised? that turned you into the kind of person who is all about asking these kind of questions? Because, like, I don't know. I'm just as black as you are, and I don't think I have the boldness to do what you're doing, although I love what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Do you think a lot about, like, what in your background led you to here? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, yes, I was raised by Nigerian immigrants who are so brutally honest, it hurts. So really, like what you're seeing in me is just like all these different cultures converging into one very sharp and rude and opinionated individual uh, for the benefit <laughs> yes. of my audience. I love it. You are everyone's hilarious Nigerian auntie. Yes, for and better or that. for worse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what has been the moment in these interviews that has surprised you the most? Or are you ever surprised? The moment that I'm, oh, I'm, the show is set up for me to be surprised. I do not know <laughs> what my guests are ever going to say, and I'm constantly shocked. I was really surprised to see the trend of four to five black friends. That was surprising. That is a weird thing to me. Yeah, because, well, you know why it was surprising is because the first time you, I experienced it, I didn't think anything of it. And then you get to the second and third time and you're like, you start to realize, oh, this is actually a social trend. And it reflects like a, a greater discomfort to say, hey, I don't have any black friends or I have more than five black friends. This is like a number I'm going to throw out to feel comfortable um, and to look really politically correct. So that really, I find so compelling. But truly everything about the interview um surprises me yeah the fact that my guests say yes surprises me but it may it delights me yeah okay so i gotta ask even though i'm never gonna be on your instagram show because i'm too scared what would be your gotcha question for me i what would be the gotcha qu i think i would ask you about you so i listened to your jeremy o'harris interview before i interviewed jeremy o'harris okay thank you and, yeah of course it was really really riveting and but my biggest question would be why didn't black women come up more in that interview Ooh. Yeah. 
And I think the answer would be I need to do some self-reflection on the ways <laughs> that I speak to and talk about issues pertinent to black women in my work. Wow, look at us growing and healing look in at us real time. Li- listen, listen, growing, <laughs> growing. Darling, honey, look at me like a little like a little sprout in the sun, honey. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh my God, I love it. All right, on that note, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, Z-Way and I play my favorite game, Who Said That? You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Sometimes food is more than just food. It's an integral part of the community. So this year, Discover is giving $5 million to support Black-owned restaurants to places like Rodney Scott's Barbecue in Charleston, Post Office Pies in Birmingham, Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, and hundreds more places in your local community all across the country. Learn how you can show your support at discover.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Witness Docs, presenting Unfinished Deep South. The new investigative true crime podcast sets out to answer a dark question looming over a small Arkansas town since 1954. Who lynched Isidore Banks? A wealthy African-American farmer and World War I veteran who found a way to prosper in the Jim Crow South, the show sets out to restore Isidore Banks' legacy. Listen to Unfinished Deep South in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. What do you do when you have too many pickles in Alaska and not enough pancake syrup in New Jersey? On the next episode of Planet Money's Summer School, we send supply and demand to the rescue. It's the economics education you always wanted but never got around to. Every Wednesday, listen now to Planet Money from NPR. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and I've been talking with Ziwei Fumido. She's a comic and TV writer and the host of a very popular Instagram live show. On that show, she asks celebrities really tough and hilarious questions about race. Now I will ask Ziwei some questions. We're going to play my favorite game together. Who said that? Ooh, and this and that. It's not gotcha at all. Uh, you will be the winner regardless because you're the only contestant. Okay, perfect. I love to win, yes. so this is great. <laughs> yes. The game is quite simple. I share three quotes from the week, and you have to guess who said the quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about stories from the week of news. You can get the person. You can get the topic. Just get close. Perfect. All right. First quote. According to my calculations, Kanye West's presidential aspirations lasted one full Scaramucci. Who said that? Who said that? I don't know who said that. Who said that? <laughs> um, was it um, Olivia Nuzzi? No, although she would. She's funny like that. This is actually someone who was named in that quote made the quote. Anthony Scaramucci said it? Yes. Wow. That's right? like That's like Mark by Mark Jacobs by Mark Jacobs by Mark Jacobs. Yes. So we know that Anthony Scaramucci is the former White House communications director who was only there for like a few days. Mm -hmm. And now his last name, Scaramucci, has come to mean not being in your job for that long. Yes. How do you feel about uh, Mr. West's short-lived run for president? Well, he never really was running for president. Let's 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 be honest. Let's dispel the myth. (laughs) Tweeting that you're running for president is not the same as actually running for president. That is very true. You know, Kim Kardashian's husband, God bless. I look forward to talking to the Kardashian West um, in the near future. So you know what? Goodness. I'll ask him about that in person, I'm sure. Oh, yes. I want you to ask him (laughs) everything. (laughs) All right. Next quote. When cows fart and burp and splatter, well, 
It ain't no laughing matter. Who said that? That sounds like a rap lyric by Gucci Mane. Oh, God, I wish. I wish it was that good. <laughs> Bars. <laughs> yes. It's actually a country song that was released this week by a very big corporation. Oh, a corporation released a country song? What corporation and what song? Well, I can't tell you. You have to guess. Okay, was Fast food chain. Fast food chain. Was it McDonald's? Close. Their biggest competitor. Uh, Wendy's? Oh, come on now. Burger King, Burger King, Burger King. Burger King. Yes, ma'am. That's I'm it. I'm sorry I don't know the quick service chain competition <laughs> market. I'm sorry I'm not plugged into that. It's okay. <laughs> so that actually was a lyric to an original country song released this week by Burger King. Okay. Uh, hit tape. I want you to hear it. When cows fart and burp and splatter, well, I ain't no laughing matter. They're releasing methane every time they do. It's kind of a bop. Do you like it? Are you into it? I mean, you know, I make music. I won't knock an artist. I see that the song is called Burger King Cow Farts. Um, so, <laughs> so that is an indictment in itself. That's, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Do you know the backstory for this thing? No, not at all. So Burger King tweeted out this song and music video to make a big announcement from the fast food chain. They are adding lemongrass to their cow's diet to reduce the methane gas those cows emit. Oh. By up to 33%, they say. Wow. And that's good for climate change. Wow. I'm glad that everyone's doing what they can. Every person, every corporation is contributing to, you know, to saving the planet. <laughs> One I song guess. at a time. One, One song, song at a time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Last quote. You just got to tell me what this quote is talking about. Mm -hmm. This has been maybe the biggest meme on Twitter this week. The biggest oh, the cake one. <laughs> oh, goodness, Seaway. You had to wait for the quote. Here's the I quote. can see it to the future. I'm a genius. You can. You can. <laughs> the quote is, they're like a still life painting. I try to make them as realistic as possible. This was um, Natalie Sidesurf. She owns Sidesurf Cake Studio in Austin, Texas. She was talking about the cake she makes. She makes these cakes that look like other things. And this week, all over the internet, we've become obsessed with cakes that look like a bottle of hand sanitizer or a grape juice box or a small animal. Then you slice into them and it's cake. What do you yeah. think it says about us that the entire adult world of the internet, grown-ups here, became obsessed with cakes that look like something else? You know, it says that therapy is a human right and that we as a society <laughs> need to come together and address how unwell we are. Um, the internet is a disease, and Al Gore should regret creating it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it says. Like, it's so weird, though, because, like, on day one of the cakes, I was like, this is fun. And, like, by day three of the cakes, I was like, this is dumb. No, Make this is, it stop. It's Dante's please. Inferno. We are in the seventh ring of hell. <laughs> what was your favorite realistic cake or um, a cake that looked like something else? Has anyone done a cake of the Holy Bible? If not, oh, then... They better not. <laughs> they, not. Not in this country. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zeeway, I am very happy to tell you that you won the game. Thank you. And your prize, I'm going to mail you a cake that looks like something else. Will you really? No. Why sorry. would you lie? This is why I have trust issues. <laughs> wow. Zeeway, this was really, really fun. I so enjoyed talking to you. 
I admire your mind, and I'm just a fan. Uh, Thank you. Tell Bo find you. You guys can find me on Twitter at Z-I-W-E-Z-Way or Instagram um, at Z-Way-F, Z-I-W-E-F. And every Thursday, I have a live show at 8 p.m. Eastern. So, you know, stay tuned. It's going to be a wild time. Stay tuned. Oh, my goodness. Z-Way, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thanks again to Z-Way Fumido for joining me. And, by the way, after we taped this interview with Z-Way, we found out that Kanye West might still be running for president. The Associated Press reported that Kanye has filed the necessary paperwork and paid the $35,000 filing fee to make it onto the ballot in Oklahoma. So, we'll see. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. My name is Michelle, and the best part of my week happened this morning. I was taking my dog into Golden Gate Park, and we saw this little girl and she was wearing the most brilliant gold sequined jacket. It was straight out of Studio 54. And I thought, you know what? The audacity of fashion is what's making my week great. Hey, Sam. This is Danny from Surprise, Arizona. The best part of my week was that I successfully registered to commence my MBA at Grand Canyon University. Being a pending asylee from Africa, it's a very high point in my life. Hi, Sam. This is Melissa from Seattle. And the best part of my week was doing a 50-mile trail run. That's right. Five zero miles in a single day. Hey, Sam. This is Tamitha. And the best part of my week is that after a very long month of daily searches, a lot of worrying, and no small number of tears, my sweet kitty Velma is finally home. Hi, Sam. This is Hussam from Sudan, Khartoum. Two years ago, I lost my mom to heart disease. It's been hard years. Since then, I have started to learn English language to overcome my sadness. Today, I can listen to your podcast and understand most of it. Hi, Sam. My name is Jamie, and I'm from Minnesota. The best thing that happened to me all week was that I came out as trans to everyone in my family and friend group on Facebook, and everyone was incredibly supportive, and it was just an overall positive experience and I wanted to share so thank you. You kept me company on a lot of training runs this year. Thank you Sam Bye. Thank you. Bye bye Ugh, That was heartwarming. Thanks to all those listeners you heard there Jamie, Hassam Tamitha, Melissa, Danny and Michelle. Y'all warm my heart Listeners you can be a part of this segment just record the sound of your voice onto your phone sharing the best part of your week and send that voice file to me at any point throughout any week. Email it to samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. This week, the show was produced by Danae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. All right, listeners, till next time, stay safe, stay healthy. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.